Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. As we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the Epistle to the Romans, we now find ourselves in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. And there the Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here, Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why is he not ashamed of the good news? He provides four reasons in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Reason number one is because the gospel reveals God's power. Reason number two is because the gospel points to Christ, who saves everyone who believes. Reason number three is that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And reason number four is that the righteousness of God in the gospel is appropriated by faith. So in this morning's lesson, we will go through the first three reasons and then tackle reason number four next time. So, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, reason number one, because the gospel reveals God's power. In verse 16, the apostle writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel has content in the form of words, and these words have power because they are breathed out by God. Accordingly, let us take note that the principle that the words of God have power is not new here in Romans. That is to say, at the beginning of Genesis, God spoke and used words of power. He said, let there be light, and creation came into existence. God is all-powerful, so of course in his words there is power. Now it is important not to miss what the Apostle writes in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. What is it? It is the gospel itself. The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation. The gospel does not tell us about the power of God that is in a secret place far, far away. The gospel is not about divine power that is without. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is a proclamation, and when preachers faithfully proclaim the gospel, God's power is manifest in the announcement. This helps to explain what Paul will write in Romans 10.17 where he says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. How can spiritual faith come from the mere natural hearing of words? The answer is, if those words contain the power of God. The means by which God uses his power to transform heart and minds for Christ is the gospel. A person can hear mere words over and over again, but there is no transformation. There is no lasting change. Why? Because in order to effect real, deep, transformative change, what a man needs is not more data or facts. What he needs is the power of God. 
What a man needs is not the verbal tricks or eloquent verbiage of a well-trained orator. What he needs is the power of God. What a man needs is not to be entertained more or to learn three strategies on how to be happier. What he needs is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. By his own power, a man cannot change another man's heart, but God can. The power of God manifests through the good news can transform a cold, dead, faithless heart into a warm, alive heart that trusts in Jesus with all its might. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And let us not forget, the gospel reveals God's power, but for what purpose? The text tells us, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In other words, not only is God all-powerful, but He uses that power for His children's sake. He uses that power to save people. We will properly define and further unpack the concept of salvation in the next point, but for now, it will suffice to settle on the idea that God engages His might to save His elect. At the start of the Bible, God used his power to create. In the next big concentration of God's demonstrated power, he used his might in the Egyptian plagues to demonstrate that he is the one true God. He thus validated that he is the true deliverer and that he will take his people out of bondage. We next see a high concentration of God's power demonstrated through miracles in the New Testament. Those signs and wonders authenticated Christ as the Messiah and subsequently validated the apostolic message that pointed to Jesus. At the end of history, Christ will finally and fully use his power to vanquish all the forces of darkness that stand against him and secure eternal peace for his elect. He will do this because he is the king that delivers his people out of darkness into his marvelous light. The point of all this, beloved, is that God does not flex his divine muscles for the sake of flexing. He uses his power to save those who are his. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now, I hope we are all clear as to the first reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because it reveals God's power. Subsequently, we are not ashamed and cherish the gospel knowing that it is God's power. If it is not the gospel, then it is not God's power for salvation. That is to say, the government does not have power to save, other religions do not have the power to save, and other people do not have the power to save. At the end of the day, there is nothing to be ashamed of because the gospel communicates God's rescue plan for sinners. Next, the second reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because, number two, it points to Christ who saves everyone who believes. Verse number 16 again says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we now have the first use of the word salvation in Romans. What does this word mean? The word in Greek can also refer to deliverance, but what is a plain language definition? Quite simply, salvation refers to God's rescue of his elect from death to life. 
Salvation implies being delivered from something dangerous and then being delivered to a place of safety. The ultimate penalty of sin is death, so the salvation that God accomplishes rescues a man from destruction and into the safety of Christ. Salvation, therefore, has a negative aspect as well as a positive aspect. The positive aspect is the restoration of the sinner into a right standing with God. Let us be mindful that the salvation that the Bible speaks of is always ultimately focused on spiritual salvation orchestrated by a spiritual God to deliver us from spiritual wrath against spiritual sin. Truly, since the beginning of time, there have been people looking for salvation from non-spiritual things, like poverty or negative feelings. But God did not send His Son to die on a cross so that we could have our best life now. Eternity matters more than the present, and biblical salvation is ultimately focused on eternity, not right now. In fact, God would not be God if He, for example, delivered us from scarcity now, but left us alone after we died. God would also not be God if He allowed blessings and prosperity now, but those things nudged us to run away from our Lord. But here is a crucial point not to miss. I just mentioned that salvation speaks to when God saves us from something bad. So what are we saved from? The answer is, in God's salvation plan, we are saved from the wrath of God. Church, understand that sin is abhorrent, but sin has no power by itself, independent from God. Sin is dangerous because all sin is an offense to God, and sin is harmful because it attempts to overrule God's moral rule of reality. Sin is lethal because the holy, all-powerful God of the universe must judge it. Hence, when talking about salvation, we are saved from the wrath of God that is revealed against sin. Who saves us? Jesus does. That is to say, God saves us from God's wrath, and it has to be that way because only God can save us from the wrath of God. What does the most famous verse in the Bible say? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Why will whosoever believes not perish? Because if they believe in Jesus, they will be safe in Him and saved from the wrath of God. Of course, we are safe and secure in Christ because only He made an atonement for the elect on the cross where God's wrath for our sin was already poured out on the Son. Now, when the Father sees us in Christ, He also sees that all of His just wrath has been satisfied. We will get to Romans 1.18 in a few lessons, but that verse says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That is, the wrath of God is revealed because of sin. But what does Romans 1.17 say? That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, for those who trust in what Christ accomplished, God does not reveal His wrath. Rather, He reveals His righteousness, and we are declared to be right with God. If we are right with God, He does not reveal His wrath. This is because salvation from the wrath of God means deliverance from sin. Deliverance from sin restores communion with the Lord. The final thing that I will say about salvation is this. 
Our salvation is not just a present reality. It is past, present, and future. This is an important idea to grasp simply because if we were to think that we were only saved at some remote point in the past, then by implication, God already did everything he needed to and we are fully okay. This may enable some folks to live like they want to and do as they please. Again, the reality is salvation is past, present, and future. The moment we express saving faith in Christ, we are justified. This happens in the past, at the start of the Christian's life, and means they are saved from the penalty of sin. As we live our Christian life, we are sanctified, meaning we are saved from the power of sin reigning in our life. This process happens in the present and is progressive. Finally, in the future, all those who are born again will be glorified in new resurrection bodies. Glorification means we will finally live in sinless perfection with Christ. The doctrine of glorification tells us that ultimate, perfect, and final salvation rests in the future. As Bible scholars always like to say, salvation is described as already, not yet, meaning it has already happened, but it is not yet complete. In Romans 1.16, the apostle says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul is therefore not ashamed of the gospel because God saves each and every person who believes in the Son. And because God's power is manifest in the gospel, it certainly is for everyone since divine power provides benefits for all creatures. When the text says salvation comes to everyone who believes, that is not to suggest that believing in Christ is something that we do. Rather, the power of God enables a man to respond to the gospel and faith is now the enabled response. If the gospel was not the power of God for salvation, then no man would respond to it because without God's help, no man would seek God in the first place. The last thing that Paul writes in verse 16 is that the gospel came to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, what does this mean? It means exactly what the text says, that God's message of salvation came first to the Jews and then to the Gentile world. Essentially, the entire Old Testament involves interactions between God and the Jewish people. They received special revelation from God first. In fact, the first gospel promise can be found in the Hebrew Old Testament in Genesis 3.15. The gospel also fulfills many Old Testament prophecies that were originally revealed only to the people of Israel. An example of such can be found in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3. That text speaks of many peoples going to the mountain of the Lord. Then, in the New Testament, God's message began spreading to the whole world, to Greeks, Romans, and many peoples of many nations and cultures. Indeed, the gospel is for everyone, but sequentially in time, it came to the Jew first and then to the Greek. At the end of the day, the gospel is good news for sinners, and all human beings are sinners. Therefore, if you are a person, then you qualify to hear the good news. The gospel truly is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. So the second reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because it points to Christ, who saves everyone who believes. Next, the third reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because...
it reveals God's righteousness. Romans 1 verse 17 says, For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We now encounter a new word, righteousness. Let us be mindful that although we read the word for the first time here in Romans, the concept is by no means novel to the Bible. For example, all the way back in Genesis 15:6, the text says that Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So what is righteousness? Probably the simplest way of thinking about righteousness is to conceptualize it as a relational state of being, and in that state, a man is right with God. Justification is a word that we will be talking about more later on, but justification refers to being declared righteous by God. The person in that state is approved by God because they are in a right relationship with the Lord. In his commentary on Romans, in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, author Douglas Moo writes, quote, For Paul, as in the Old Testament, righteousness of God is a relational concept. Bringing together the aspects of activity and status, we can define it as the act by which God brings people into right relationship with himself. End quote. When a person does what is right, they are called righteous, and when a person does what is wrong, they are called unrighteous. But here and now lies the problem. God is perfect, so there is no possible way that a man can be right with God unless the man is perfectly righteous. From God's eyes, being righteous demands perfect obedience to the law. Not just the requirements of doing and not doing, but also of thought and intent. From man's eyes, people may say things like, he's a just man, or he's a righteous man, but this is what happens when sinful men judge other sinners. They use imperfect scales to judge what they can only see on the outside. God uses holy and divine vision to judge the whole person, even what's in their heart. Additionally, because we are all sinners, we are incapable of making ourselves righteous, declaring ourselves righteous, or always doing the right thing. Yet, to be accepted by God, being righteous is absolutely necessary. To be accepted by God means life. To be rejected by God because of sin means death. So if we can't make ourselves righteous, what is a man to do? If we can't make ourselves righteous, what does God do? He reveals His righteousness to us. Thus, by God's grace, He imputes His righteousness to us, so now we take hold of an alien righteousness that is not our own. Romans 1.17 says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the source of the righteousness is the Lord himself, and he therefore reveals his righteousness to us. We then appropriate that righteousness by faith. Paul is therefore not ashamed of the gospel, because in it, God's righteousness is accomplished for us and imputed to us. So the righteousness of God is divine, but specifically, it is Christ's. As God in the flesh, Jesus has an innate righteousness simply as a function of who he is. 
but what Jesus then did during his entire public ministry is perfectly obey every part of the law of God perfectly for more than three decades. Just think about this for one second. In Matthew 22:37, Jesus says the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind? I have not done that for one billionth of one nanosecond. In fact, no one has ever fulfilled that commandment, and if they say they did, they're lying to themselves. So what Jesus did every minute for 33 years is what no human being can do for a fraction of a second. What he did, of course, is fulfill every commandment of the law. By his perfect obedience, Christ is the one who fulfilled the whole law and achieved a perfect righteousness in his life by doing everything right. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And as Paul writes in Romans 10.4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, when we trust in Jesus by faith, we also trust in His perfect righteousness. This is what is subsequently revealed to those who believe. Thus, as Romans 1.17 says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, he made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Philippians 3.9, the text says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. As the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, He bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Church, the bad news is that all men are guilty because they have failed to fulfill the perfect law of the God of the universe. The good news is that the gospel reveals the perfect righteousness of Christ and His righteousness fulfills all the demands of the law. By trusting in Christ, God imputes the Son's righteousness to us so that now we don't stand before God based on our own merit. We stand before Him being dressed in the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness. It is therefore a function of what Christ did that we are declared to be right with God. Beloved, as the saying goes, zeros don't make it to heaven. Meaning, Christ's atonement on the cross pays the moral debt owed to God because of our sin. That means we are now back to zero, but zeros do not make it to heaven. So, when a person now trusts in Christ, the Lord not only removes our stained and filthy robes, He also places His robes of perfect righteousness on us. Now we are more than zeros because of our Savior. In short, the death of Christ takes away the negative, the life of Christ 
imputes the positive. All of this speaks to a powerful biblical doctrine, justification by faith alone. This simply refers to a foundational biblical doctrine that the only way a man gets right with the Lord is by trusting in Jesus. We will unpack this crucial doctrine next time when we also finish up talking about the final reasons why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Until then. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.